God speaks to us in his word in 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Can you hear me? Am I good? Um, I'm so pleased to be here. It's been a while. So I've been back down here to Shawnee. It's so fun to see uh, familiar faces um, and also to see new faces. It's wonderful um, and encouraging to see what God's doing here in Shawnee. Um, we're going to kick off this series in Rhythms of Grace. Before we turn to the passage, would you pray with me real quick? God, we pray for uh, illumination. We pray for encouragement. Open our hearts and minds and souls to the, the truth and wisdom and goodness that you have for us this morning. Let us receive it eagerly and enjoy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> um, so I, I, I thought a lot about formation, and um, I, was, I had this kind of surreal experience a couple weeks ago when um, having a conversation with my oldest son, Henry, about answering machines. Um, and the, the, the awkwardness of it was explaining descriptively what answering machines did. And you may still have an answering machine, I'm sorry if that offends you, that they, the past tense of did, but, and it's a, it's a strange thing. So what people would do, I said, is they would call you, and if you weren't there, then this machine had a tape in it, and you would, you would talk, the other person would talk into the phone, and it would leave this little recording on your device. And of course, the natural response is, well, why would anybody do that? Right? I mean, it's a kid, it's a, why leave a message on somebody's tape? Or why would you, why not just wait till they call back? Or, or what is the, like he was trying to get a pic, wider picture of why this happened. But this, this got me, I mean, just that whole exercise of trying to describe why answer machines were a thing at all. And, you know, why we left funny messages on there for people to, you know, put their messages on. Why? Well, something about technology in particular is really formative. I mean, think, I mean just how quickly answer machines came and went, right? Or caller ID came and went or whatever. Um, they powerfully form us. And that's an object, that's an object for thinking about how powerfully we're formed. I, I don't even remember phone numbers anymore. I used to remember like 10, 15 phone numbers. Remember all your buddies? You'd be able to go up and all their numbers, this and that. I can't remember, my, I barely can remember my wife's number. I forget my address all the time. All right, so we, we have like atrophies of memory because everything is available on our devices so we don't have to remember things. So we have this technology that's in a lot of ways very wonderful, but it's supplanted some important faculties that we have. 
right? Not just in the way of memory, like not being able to remember something, knowing that we can easily go look it up, um, but in what we feel gratified by, right? We're, deep, we're so deeply connected to particularly our personal devices that it becomes really difficult to even do without them. We don't, I mean, we're certainly not going to leave them at home. Right? I've joked with students before, like when they drop it on the ground, they pick it up and the screen's broken. It's like an appendage is broken, you know, like a whole finger is out of socket. It's like, you know, we insure our phones and so on and so forth. Um, think of other technologies too. We organize our furniture in the living room around what? Around television. You think, well, that's the most efficient way to look at the television, but that's not how things have always been, right? Furniture was organized in different ways. It's not a criticism, it's just how, how it's happened. Technology has just absorbed this place into our lives, right? Or another one that I think is really revealing, uh, which I've used as an example in different instances, is what's called the phantom ring. Does anybody know what a phantom ring is? Phantom rings usually happens when you, you have your phone on your person, and uh, you reach in, you pull it out, because you really think you've received a notification, but nothing's happened. What's happening, this happens to the majority of people who have um, a personal device like smartphones, is your, your, your neural system has learned how to stimulate your body so that you will go and get your phone to bring it before your eyes. So the body has adapted uniquely to sort of recreate the sensations that the phone provides so that we kind of get back in, so we get the dose that the phone provides for us. You can go on and on with examples of how formative they are. So when we talk about spiritual formation, we're not just, like, technology is just an object. It's an entry point for beginning to think about it. But the, the formation is holistic, okay? The formation is holistic. It forms our bodies, our minds, our appetites, our affections, our memories, our aspirations, okay? All of us. So in thinking about um, spiritual formation as a beginning, so we want to kind of introduce what rhythms of grace are. So I'll be talking a lot about spiritual formation because that's basically historically how the church has talked about it. How we are as spiritual beings formed on the Christian account into Christ-likeness. How we are made like Jesus Christ. And that's his work. That's the work of Christ. But to, we need some rationale. So here are several reasons why spiritual formation. Not just now, but just anytime. And it's important that we've turned to it this summer. Okay. All we encounter, everything, consciously or unconsciously, forms us. Everything. Everything we encounter, consciously or unconsciously, forms us. We are uh, uh, molded by what we experience. So formation is holistic. It encompasses the things that I mentioned earlier, beliefs. The complexity and speed of contemporary life makes it difficult to identify those formative powers. Usually we kind of catch it in retrospective. Or we see like, man, I can't, I used to be able to do this and now I can't. Or I want to stop doing this and I, you know, I can't do that either. We just feel like our intentions, our willpower has just been completely supplanted. Or, or the powers of it have been eroded. We are by nature predisposed to think that appeasing our desires is the sort of natural thing to do. In other words, we think if we do what is natural, that's sort of the right thing. We have this, this sense, intuition that that's the right thing to do. You ever heard the phrase, like, go with your gut? Like, which is, I mean, okay. I mean, if you're selecting from the menu of appetizers, I guess go with your gut, right? Or if it's a 2-2 count and you're wondering whether to take the pitch or not, I mean, go with your gut. But that's not, uh, that's not something you just should do. Can I just say that? That's not a way to live, going with your gut. Um, doing what is natural will often lead to catastrophe. Yeah. All right? It leads to destruction for ourselves and for other people. 
because our, our, our actions have consequences. So we're, we're, we're predisposed to think that if we just do what's natural, if we do what we think is best for us, that that'll work out well. And maybe it will, but it's not a way to live. And over time, the actual, the actual results and evidences for that are pretty slim. We're prone to confuse how we are doing spiritually with how we are feeling. I'm going to repeat that one. We are prone to confuse how we are doing spiritually with how we are feeling. There is an intimate connection between our affections, what we desire, and our spiritual vitality. No doubt about that. Right? When we talk about joy or gladness, we're talking about something we feel. Right? But that is not itself an adequate indicator of spiritual health. How we are doing, what is the level of intimacy with God? You could turn all over the Bible for this, but just consider the case of Job. Job is closest to God when he's lost everything, is as absolute end. And this is where God beats him? Yeah. Happens everywhere in the scriptures. Where the feeling of absolute abandonment or total destitution or hopeless loss, whatever, that God can meet us there. God will meet us there. There's a whole lot more to say about that relationship between vitality, spiritual vitality and feeling. But let me just say, it's not just about how we're feeling. God wants to make us creatures, beings who serve him, and so feel what he feels in that sense. So that we engage others, we live our lives in that sense, sort of in the flow of God's ongoing life. That's how he's forming us. So we're prone to do that confusion. One of our greatest talents is deception of ourselves and others. I'm just laying out the rationale. We're not even to the text yet. One of our greatest talents is to deceive ourselves and others. We think we're either doing one of two things. We're either killing it or we're hopeless failures. Am I right? We're not really modest about our own self-perceptions in that way. I'm either killing it this week or today or, you know, I really, I stunk. I didn't do what I wanted to do. I didn't, I wasn't faithful or whatever. We never really see ourselves in the middle. We don't even know what that really looks like. But that's just one symptom of our power, our, our proficiency at deception. The little white lies we tell ourselves or tell others, the way we strike a pose in the world, what we want others to see about us or to acknowledge or recognize in us. We are highly sophisticated deceivers. God's told us that from the beginning. We know, we know that we are. Therefore, the formation that we need is that much more necessary so that we see ourselves aright. We see others aright. We see God's, God's work and God's ongoing purpose aright. The quest for spiritual formation just involves suffering, and we are allergic to suffering. Jesus tells his disciples, if you follow me, you will suffer. That is the, that's what happens when you're a disciple. But we are intensely allergic to suffering. And we'll do just about anything to kind of curate the lifestyle so that we don't have to do that. We don't have to encounter that person, or we don't have to have that conversation, or we don't have to go to that store, or whatever. I mean, we can have all kinds of crazy reasons not to want to do something or to avoid suffering. We don't seek it out, but it's what happens when we're disciple. So if we're entering in the path of spiritual formation, which is the quest of discipleship, the sojourning that Jesus describes, then we're going to suffer, and that's not going to feel great. It doesn't feel good to suffer. It's not something we necessarily want, something we want to shirk, but it's a necessary part of spiritual formation. It means that we're doing something that goes against the grain of our natural appetites. 
Okay, so, and that's the next rationale. We, we resist disciplines and practices that go against the grain of our natural appetites. So our natural appetites are sort of going one direction, right? And we want to kind of, you know, like a cat, just want to stroke those in the right direction. If you go the other way, the cat, you know, gets pissed and runs off. That's the way it goes with us, right? If we push against the grain of our natural appetites, like, I don't like that. And we'll find all kinds of ways to get out of it. And then instead of stepping back into a bigger picture, we happen to inhabit a society and culture at a time in which desire is given maximum scope. We inhabit a culture, a society at a time in which the ideals, the the greatest vision for life is one in which you do what you want. You find your bliss. You find what works for you. Whatever, right? Going with your gut. I call it the ethic of lifestyle curation. You you sort of figure out, you life hack your way to sort of avoid the things you want to avoid and get the things you want to get. the, The thing is, Either the good life or a good life is whatever you and I individually choose for ourselves, or there's something good to life that none of us get to decide and that we just have to respect and acknowledge, and that's the thing that we should pursue. That thing that the scriptures call that thing God, <laughs> everywhere in the New Testament. God is that thing around which the, good, the goods that we can possibly enjoy and secure, that's where they're all found. There are temporary sort of secondary goods, but then there are also there's the eternal good that is God, as we'll get to sort of in the text. So here's the here's a way of encompassing all that rationale. There's a whole lot more to say about just why we should care about this. But disciples are commanded. We're commanded to pursue disciplines and practices because through them we're put in a position to receive God's grace afresh. Okay? We're commanded to do that because we're put in unique positions to receive God's grace afresh. And he wants to give it to us. So in the passage that was read in here in 2 second, in second Peter 1, um, Peter is outlining three things. This we're going to walk through. He's giving the means or the, God's, uh, the, the way that God provides transformation. He gives us a sense of what the task is for us. And then he specifies what the purpose is. Okay, we're going to walk through each of those. The means, the task, and the purpose. It's very clear. It's sequential. To give you some context, this letter is probably written about two or three decades after Jesus has died and resurrected. And Peter is probably incarcerated in Rome and it's about to be executed. So the context is actually the next verses that follow kind of specify, give you some some hint that that's about to be what happens. And so Peter's probably thinking big picture. And so he starts in with this letter by talking about what the life should look like, what this Christ-like life should look like. So there's a proclamation. We've got the means. The means of spiritual formation, of transformation, are God's. God's power and promise. So look at the first few verses. God grants us all that we need for life and godliness. God grants us all that we need for life and godliness. So one of, the, one of the things that we can do if we want to be transformed, if we want to be more like Christ, is to ask. We can pray, make me more like your son. Provide for me the grace today to live as you have called me to. We can ask for that. God wants to give it to us. So he provides all that we, all that we need for life and godliness. How does he do that? He says in the very next verse, through the knowledge of Christ who called us to his own glory and excellence. Okay, that word, excellence, can be translated as virtue, as it is later, which is probably the more apt translation. That is, he calls us to a life of virtue, that's the part of the task we'll get to, that he himself is. What Peter is saying is he wants to know what the standard of excellence is. 
It's Christ himself. He is virtue. He is excellence. So he's, not, he's calling us to a, the thing that he himself is. And so provides it. So how through the knowledge of Christ, it's important clarification here. When we think about knowledge, and Peter mentions that word a lot, in the New Testament, knowledge is not how we typically consider it. So if I say, do you know something, in our own kind of contemporary parlance, we'll say, well, we're capable of bringing it before the mind's eye, right? We're capable of bringing it before our minds. We, we have something up here, right? Cognitive belief or something like that. In the New Testament, knowledge always refers to interactive relationship. So in romantic languages, this carries itself out, like with Konosko and that sort of thing. Interactive relationship. So when he talks about knowledge of Christ, he's saying, do you, the, we're talking about interactive relationship with Christ, familiarity with him. And Paul refers to it the same way. It's important because there's actually other groups and cultures around that use knowledge in different ways where you kind of set people aside. They have special status because of what they know. And that's not how the early Christians see it. It's not about what you know, it's who fundamentally changes how people are identified and how, what brings this pe- particular people together, the church. So how? Through the knowledge of God who called us to his own glory and virtue and excellence. He promises, same passage, first few verses, he promises himself. He offers his power. He delivers us from the corruptions of the world. Notice how the corruptions happen. Peter tells us, wrought by sinful desire. And so if you want to know, and what Peter's saying, if we want to know what's happened, we have this world which God created which was good. What happened to it? Well, we say it's sin. But yes, the seed of that sin is this wrongful desire. It's the pride. It's the malice. It's whatever else that we wanted. These desires. So God promises himself, his power, delivers us from the corruptions of the world wrought by sinful desire, and we partake of his nature. So there's a little bit of a sequence. He offers us his power, and we partake of his nature. So it's just belonging, it's enjoying that interactive relationship that, the, that the, the, the process of formation occurs. He just does it. Uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, it's described as sanctification, the setting apartness. Right? The setting apartness. A community of people who profess the risen Lord will live differently than others. That's just what happens. And it's put so starkly in the New Testament that Jesus sort of asked the, it's a tacit in all the questions, if it isn't a community that looks so much different than the world, is it a community of faith? Peter is asking the exact same question. Either the faith is supplemented with a way of living, which is really quite different than the conditions on which the world lives. It professes something different. It it lives in its actual day-to-day life in a way that's different both in personal conduct and in way of collegiality and fellowship, what it's willing to sacrifice and give up, what it's willing to say is a lie, its willingness not to lie, that sets a community apart to be who Christ has made it. That is intrinsically attractive. We have examples of it throughout the history of the church. The early church was so self-sacrificial, people just came to talk to them about why they did that, selling themselves into slavery and all kinds of crazy stuff, things that are unthinkable to us. But it was attractive because it was just different. They had acknowledged certain goods, ways of living, forms of life, which all others saw as being indispensable. They knew they saw something good. They saw something good. So that's, God's, that's uh, Peter's proclamation. God provides the means of all godliness. 
Right? He himself gives his very person. We partake of it. There's a, a parallel passage in Galatians 5. This is Paul's uh, description of the flesh and spirit. And I don't want to dwell on that too long, but it just gives you another sort of line of sight on just how pronounced this is in the New Testament. Flesh and spirit refer to powers, okay? They refer to powers that, um, that apply to particular forms of life. You can walk in the flesh or you can walk in the spirit. And the way Paul puts it is they are opposed to one another. So you can do one or the other. It's not like you can do one at the same time. You can't hold hands with them and walk down, right? It's just either one or the other. It's put in a disjunct. Spirit and flesh have their own catalogs of desires, and they're opposed to each other. Desires of the flesh express themselves in work like sensuality, enmity, jealousy. These any sound familiar? Okay. Sensuality, enmity, jealousy, anger, and drunkenness are just examples. Whereas fruits of the Spirit, by contrast, are the, is the catalog that you probably have uh, memorized. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness. And the same attribute comes up in Peter. Self-control. We're going to revisit that. Self-control. He says in verse 24, Paul, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's how far they've gone. It isn't sort of enough for Paul to just sort of say, well, they recognize that they've got that part of themselves. And wouldn't it be great if we could do something about that? There's a way in which we idealize the spiritual life as a way of excusing ourselves from doing what's hard. I'm going to say that again. We often idealize certain challenges of the spiritual life to excuse ourselves from doing what is hard. That is the level of self-deception that I'm partly what I'm talking about. It's hard to recognize that there is something we could do that is very difficult. It is hard. Disciplines don't feel good. Fasting isn't, doesn't feel good. You get hangry. We all get hangry, right? But those who belong to Christ, according to Paul, have crucified their flesh. He can say that because that's exactly what Jesus has invited his disciples to, right? To be crucified with him, to carry their cross with him. It means dying to themselves, dying to what their most base appetites, their most sort of personal wants are, and instead adopting the wants that Christ has given them, that he's shown them and that has directed them towards. So the fruits of the Spirit, notice this, are the Spirit's fruits. The Spirit's fruits, like just to say, that's affirming the point that Peter had made. We don't achieve our own spirituality. We don't achieve our own spiritual formation. None of the improvements or amendments or changes that are wrought in us are done by us. We're just putting ourselves in the position for God to do that work uniquely. It's not our achievement. Right? As Protestants, Protestants get nervous about um, trying to suffuse any kind of spirituality with something that we have a responsibility for. But that's, that's just in, in the New Testament. We do have a responsibility. We have our own, and the response part is central to that. We respond to it. So notice this. We receive from Christ, through the Spirit, all that we need to live with and for Christ. We receive from Christ, through the Spirit, all that we need to live with and for Christ. Okay, so that's the means. God, right? This is the short answer. Through the Spirit. Uh, the task is Peter's next point. So we have a responsibility, and I want to emphasize the response part. That is, God having redeemed us brings us to a response of also obeying, but faith and obedience belong to one another. We believe and we obey, and they're complementary. 
make every effort to su supplement faith with virtue, and so on with the other qualities. But I just want to pause there for a second. Make every effort to supplement faith with virtue. Um, virtue gets kind of a bad rap. Um, it, it's often even kind of perceived as quaint. It's sort of a quaint thing to be virtuous. Is, it's, it, be, it would be nice. Maybe it's too ideal. Or maybe it's just sort of old-fashioned. Um, but it has to do with excellences. And the excellences we've described come from Christ Jesus. Make every effort. Your translation may say, with all diligence. And it's not an exaggeration. Peter really does mean that we make every effort. We try in every way that we can to put ourselves in the position to supplement faith with virtue. That is, the confidence we have with Jesus in forms of life which display the power of Jesus. So we get a little short catalog, and we need to parse that just a bit. So he says, uh, with every effort, uh, supplement to your faith virtue, with virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, steadfastness, to steadfastness, godliness, to godliness, brotherly, assistly affection, and to affection, love. That's not meant to be a comprehensive list. Peter is not saying these and only these. He's saying that these are the sorts of qualities that typify disciples. This is the, these are the sort of qualities that inhere in a person that others see visibly because of their faith. Or to put it further, because they're supplementing their faith with virtue. Excellence. There's, uh, there are implications for that too. All right, the implications for that too. I want to come back because the, this one um, virtue came up a couple in both passages to self-control. It is... Um, among the easiest of our failures, self-control. And that's partly because our desires are so strong and our will is so weak. If you think of will as sort of like the gate through which the forces of our affections flow, right? Have you ever seen that? This is Oklahoma, of course you have, but like when cattle are being wrangled into the little corral or whatever, you know? Those are our affections. They're all over the place. They're tumultuous. They don't listen. They have their own sort of power over us. And if you think of the will as sort of like this gate through which the affections can pass, and then willpower is uh, something, it's just very weak, and um, we, just, we just can't flip a switch. We like to think we could. We'd like to think that today I'm going to, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to be a prayer person, right? Or I'm going to be controlled now. I'm going to be a self-controlled person, right? If you, if you, if you were self-controlled, you wouldn't have to say that, right? There's a little bit of an irony there. But like self-control is exceedingly difficult because our passions are so wild and unrestrained and fickle. Because even if you give appeasement to your desire, what do you find out? That you need more. There isn't like there, it, the bucket of our passions. If you keep pouring into it, it doesn't have a bottom to it. You just pour in and pour in and pour in until you just ruin yourself. That's the nature of human desire that doesn't actually have an object that transcends itself. That is, that is the living God. So self-control is, is an important quality. It doesn't mean you're perfect or stoic, that you're impassive to all things, right, implacable. There are certain images that might, be, that might come to mind of the person who's just per perfectly poised, right? That's not really what it's about. 
It's about being formed in a way where we recognize that our appetites are what they are. We can recognize, by extension, which ones have prevalence or priority over us. For example, when do we find that we're frustrated or irritated or angry? Why? All right. To get to that sort of point means that we have practiced disciplines that's made it possible even to self-reflect. Our lives are so busy, we may not have any time today or tomorrow to do nothing at all but sit and to ponder our own lives or to journal or to pray or to contemplate or to meditate or any of the number of things that are practices that are commended in the New Testament because we're busy. It's important to be diligent. It's not important to be busy. Being diligent and being busy are very different things. Busyness is a very modern virtue that will ruin. It ruins us. Because if that becomes the end, then we really won't. We'll find every excuse to not do something. But the not doing something, the putting ourselves in a position to be circumspect, to reflect, to pray, as I said, that then allows at least for the possibility of getting purchase on ourselves in some way through God's transformation that we might be able in a moment not to act on the impulse, to be self-controlled, right? To not say that thing that we right there were going to say, right? Or whatever. To not make the purchase. Any number of things can apply there. Self-control is an important quality. Volatility, erratic behavior does not, is not representative of Christ's life. We just don't see Jesus acting that way, right? All the qualities that Paul, Peter mentions here are qualities that Jesus himself perfectly represented. So notice the implication in this passage. When ours and increasing, these qualities, when ours and increasing, we are kept from ineffective and unfruitful knowledge of Christ. Remember, the knowledge part is interactive relationship. Not, it's not we're kept from the unfruitful or ineffective relationship with Christ. And the implications of that are eternal, as I'll say in a second. But when they are lacking, he says, we are blind and short-sighted, forgetting our past cleansing from sin. So when they are lacking, in other words, we become blind to ourselves. To such an extent, we become blind about our past. Because Christians will say that the most decisive event in their lives was that Jesus was crucified on Calvary, right? That Jesus, Christ, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified under Pontius Pilate and rose three days afterwards, as he promised. That's the decisive moment for the entire Christian church. That moment and God's salvation in it are forgotten when we have not done what Peter has commanded here. When we have not su supplemented our faith with the virtue, with these qualities. When these qualities are lacking, we are blind, even to the fact of our redemption in Jesus Christ. We are blind to ourselves. We are blind to our past. We're blind to what God's purposes are. We're blind to others. Right? We just don't see ourselves. We don't even see the needs of others. We don't even see the purposes that God has laid out before us. So the blindness metaphor is really apt, as so many of the metaphors in the New Testament are. It puts perfectly the position that we are in when those qualities are lacking. Where can we go? We don't even know where to go. We just have faith. All right? And we forget who we've been. We forget where God's taken us. We forget what others, or we're blind to what others have, have, uh, are to us or what they, what they ask from us. So when lacking, we're blind. We're forgetting our past life. So the imperative, therefore, is to be all the more diligent to confirm our calling and election. 
So let's get a picture, a clear picture of what the spiritual disciplines are. There's two categories, just as a kind of way of framing it up for yourselves. There are disciplines of abstinence, and there are disciplines of engagement. Okay, and these aren't all. We're going to walk uh, through in the coming weeks this series some of these. Some some of them we're going to. Um, we can't get through all of them, but we're going to get through quite a number. Um, and in getting them to them, I think it's helpful just to um, to make a clarifying point, which has been implicit so far. And it's this: grace isn't opposed to effort; it's opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort; it's opposed to earning. No one can do, there aren't, we don't carry any merits with us to eternal grace, to God's final judgment. We only have the merits that Christ has given us. So like either we're standing before God and Christ is there as our advocate saying, that one's mine and that one's mine. They belong with me as they're my people. They're under my blood. That's all. That's all the merit we've got. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians is saying like, well, you know, what are you boasting in? You don't have anything to boast about. The only thing you've got was given to you. You don't have status. You have only the standing which Christ has given you through his sacrifice and love. So grace isn't opposed to effort. We can't, we can't get ourselves there. There's no bootstrapping it in the heavenly kingdom. Right. But it's not opposed to earning. Right. It's opposed to earning, not opposed to effort, excuse me. All right. Grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. That is, we can put ourselves in positions to receive that grace afresh. And the disciplines are those practices. So examples of disciplines of abstinence are um, fasting, solitude, silence, um, and an uncommon one, uh, at least mentioned in the index, frugality. Sometimes it's uh, important, as an example, not to spend. To give more than we intended to give, sacrificially. But those are examples of abstinence. And what I mean is that we're, these are things we're refraining from. So if fasting, it could be from particular foods or from technology or some, something else. Solitude and silence tend to belong together. If you're by yourself, usually you're silent. But that doesn't have to be the case. It's easy to go into solitude and then... Populate, I mean, that's the temptation, right? The, the temptation of going to solitude is to provide noise because we find solitude so threatening. When it's just us and there are no other distractions, it's just us and God. Let's say, like, you know, right when the light goes out and you're about to go to sleep and the deepest, darkest thoughts come and you realize, like, all the things that you said you wouldn't have said, right? When things get really existential. Is that just me? Am I the only one that gets really existential right when the light goes out? And suddenly, like, all the real priorities of life come flooding in. All right? that's because we're confronted suddenly with just, it's just us, and there's that darkness, there's no distractions. Solitude can be really threatening, and so we find other things to distract ourselves. And maybe you're just bored. It's totally okay to be bored. It is totally okay to be bored. It's really, really hard. But boredom is something, boredom, quote-unquote, will be something that happens in the early practices of disciplines. What we find is that the boredom of solitude and silence actually gets transferred. What happens in the practice is that it becomes something that's desirable. That's what happens with all these practices. They're, they're hard, like all practices are hard at first, right? Or you start lifting weights or riding a bike or whatever, you want to go into bike stuff, but whatever it is. Like when you first start something, you get, it's hard. Your muscles, you know, feel, you know, everything hurts. The same thing happens with spiritual practices. 
right? When we start them, they are hard. And what happens over time is that in that infusion of grace, there will still be difficulties to them, but they, they're seen in entirely different ways. We see them then as invitations for new life. The other, the other category are we call disciplines of engagement. Okay, and those are things like, and there's some overlap obviously, prayer, study, or fellowship, uh, memorization, uh, contemplation or meditation. Those are good practices. But they're disciplines which in a way chasten our natural desires, which is a point I made earlier on, that they chasten our natural desires. We have these natural appetites. What disciplines do is they say no to them, if and if temporarily. It's like a rebuffing of those desires. And then you see what happens. Like there's an opening, there's like an in, there's a little inflow suddenly for new grace, for grace afresh. So those are examples of practices. And all that's required in this sense is that we just, we try them. <laughs> just give them a go. That's the sort of effort part I'm talking about. But where do you find time for that? Where do we find time for anything that matters? Right? So either, put it this way, either we care about the life which Christ has called us to, or we have other priorities. It's okay to just acknowledge that we just don't care about that. It's hard. I've, I've done it myself. I'm not saying to you, to you anything I haven't said to myself. Right? It ta- it's very easy. Take a taxonomy of the week. What have I, what have I done in these seven days? What, have, what are my priorities? And then you can just sort of see pretty quickly what the priorities are. Right? Now we have responsibilities. We all have them. Right? We can't just sort of swipe our plate clean and just do only spiritual things, heady things. Right? But they start somewhere. All this leads to the eternal element. Okay? That's the very end. That's where we wrap up. So these practices can actually come together into what we call traditions, right? So you practice something long enough and it, can, it becomes sort of tradition, right? Maybe it's like Friday night pizza or something like that, family meal. But they can be other things too, like, like church assemblies on Sunday, like we're doing now, holidays. But the purpose that Peter's pointing to is eternal. It's the eternal significance. So here's Peter's hope, and this is how he's concluding. And remember, he's in prison, probably going to be executed in the coming days. Accepting our responsibility, our task, is natural consequence of that election and calling that he's talked about before, and that's entrance into the eternal kingdom. There's one definition of eternal life offered in the whole New Testament in John, and, this is, and it's Jesus speaking to his disciples. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and your Son whom you sent. This is eternal life. That this, he put it is. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and your Son whom you sent. Knowledge in the way of interactive relationship. This helps make sense of the passage in the Sermon on the Mount where um, Jesus says, many, many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do that? Is that passage, do you recall that? Lord, didn't we prophesy or cast out in your name? And the consequence of that passage is, it doesn't even matter whether we say that we know God. It only matters whether God knows us. So it turns the whole power or the authority relationship. It's not, it's not like, oh, we get to say whether or not we belong. It only, deter- only matters whether God knows us, whether we're known. This is eternal life that we may know you, the one true God, that they may know you, the one true God, and your son whom you sent. So we're being formed to live with God forever, to be caught into the slipstream of God's working spirit, to walk in the spirit, is to walk in the activity of God's ongoing work. So in the way that Jesus puts it, we're seeing others as those to whom Christ comes. God's still active in history. Conformity to the image of Jesus 
pleases God. Just, it's okay. It's like simple point. It pleases God. He wants it for us. It pleases him. He wants relationship with us, intimacy with us. And it also has the effect of displaying his goodness and power. Uh, I don't know about you, um, but I see a lot of people and come into contact with a lot of people and certainly see it through media. There's a lot of human brokenness in this world. There are a lot of dashed uh, hopes and fears, or ho- hopes and aspirations. There's a lot of um, anxiety and frustration, and there's a lot of anger. And I think there's, this is, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a moment, um, I think we're in a moment in which there's a, tr- a tremendous amount of searching. Because we're spinning the wheels of entertainment and what could be appeasing and what could sort of hold our attention. And in doing that, what, the, the more that's, that's sought, just sort of that constant appeasement, you sort of churn through stuff and there's nothing else to turn to. People want, all, all people want what is good. There's this natural inclination. We want something that's good. We, we kind of have a sense that we know it when we see it. In displaying the image of the Son, right, being conformed, being transformed through these practices, in the power of the Spirit, God is doing His work. Like, that is the work of witness. We're just representing Christ to others. We're bringing Him to others. And that's part of the task of spiritual formation. None of these are guarantees that we will achieve what we want. In a way, it doesn't matter what we, what we want to achieve. It only matters that we put ourselves at God's disposal. That's the constant invitation in the New Testament, to put ourselves at his disposal, to really put, to crucify the flesh, to really pick up the cross, to really uh, order our lives so that God can uh, release in us that fresh inbreaking in of the Spirit. So part of the, um, in kind of transitioning to our time with communion, part of what's happening when we're formed is we're being formed for each other. So one of the consequences of spiritual formation is that we're not just sort of, we, we are changed into new beings. We're given new life through his regeneration. We're set apart to a new work, to a new call. And we're doing that with others. And so when we coming to the table, what we're, the, this, whole, this whole point of communion it represents our communion, our, our reconnection with God. Christ in his death and resurrection has atoned for our sin and um, built that bridge to God. And we are reconciled to God through his death and resurrection. We commune with him. And because we commune with him, we also commune with one another. So God is the very means of our communion with one another. As Jesus gathered with his own disciples, he took the bread, he broke it, he says, this is my body, which is broken for you, take and eat. The bread of life, that's what the church has called this. And likewise, he took the cup, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, right? The covenant of my blood, a new promise for a new people, which is a purpose of hope and of life everlasting. Through his blood, we are atoned and we're given um, communion with one another. When, um, let's 